If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from a few amazing fundraisers about what they value most as members of Tammy Zonker's Fundraising Transformers community. I have had the honor of learning and growing from Tammy. She has really helped us understand how to communicate better with our donors, how to make sure that our mission is at the front line of their decision making. And she has just been an absolute joy to learn from. That's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, talking about how being a growth member is helping her communicate better with her donors. When you join Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member, you get live training and coaching with Tammy twice each month. You can get your burning questions answered during her live Ask Me Anything sessions. You get to join in Tammy's live weekly hot topic discussions. You can engage with other fundraising pros like you and her private and safe online community. And you get 24-7 access to her growing library of on-demand fundraising training videos and tools. Here's Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how being a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community is helping her grow her capacity, her skills, and her confidence as a fundraiser. It's been so helpful for me to grow my capacity and my skills. I feel more confident uh, knowing that I have Tammy and the Fundraising Transformers group for support. I've reached out to Tammy and the group on several occasions, whether it be just some wording for an email to say, hey, can somebody give me just a little bit of feedback on this? I'd love your thoughts before I send this out for an initiative. We'll hear more later in the show about why Jenna values having access to Tammy's members-only, on-demand training library. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I'm talking with Mark Pittman. Mark is the founder of Concord Leadership Group, where he helps people lead their teams with more effectiveness and less stress. Whether it's through one-on-one executive coaching, conducting high engagement trainings, or growing leaders through his ICF accredited coaching certification program, which by the way, has some pretty impressive alumni. He's also the author of Ask Without Fear, which has been translated into Dutch, Polish, Spanish, and Mandarin. And more recently, he's authored a book called The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Use uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you are meant to be, which we'll be talking about today. Mark's expertise and his sheer enthusiasm engages audiences around the world, both in person and online. He's been featured in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Al Jazeera, Fox News, Success Magazine, and Real Simple. He is husband to his best friend, Emily, and the father of three amazing kids. 
And he says that if you pass him on the road, he'll be singing 80s tunes loud enough to embarrass his family. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I should probably say that it's loud enough to get through their headphones at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Try as they may to tune you out. That's right. It can't be done. Although they do fight for the Bluetooth now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, Seth Godin endorsed your book and he wrote The Surprising Gift of Doubt is a generous book with a breakthrough approach to thinking about how and why we lead. He said, Mark Pittman will help you realize that leadership is a choice, it's a skill, and it's open to each of us. I love that. I think that, first of all, Seth Godin, hello. I I don't know him that well. Like I've met a few times, but yeah, when I emailed him and then he he said, yeah, I I said, you probably won't have time. And so I totally get that. And he said, that was a very good approach. Um, I probably don't have time. And two days later, he had that. And then my publisher said, did you see what he put on the blog today? And his blog post of the day was about doubt. So it was like he, you know, he had actually internalized the stuff. Yeah, it was very, very cool. Very generous. Well, and it's a powerful book. So it spoke to him. So tell us about the inspiration for writing this book. If you're saying it's a powerful book, it's one of the things that was intriguing to me was the endorsers that I asked to endorse it. It's the first book I've written where they came back to me and said, glowing things. And then in a subcategory, they said, oh, Mark, and that thing you said on page 64, oh my goodness, that just totally revolutionized how I'm approaching my business. Even the process of getting it reviewed was really encouraging as an author. It's so so much fun. Um, So the reason I wrote it was because I got tired of people asking me what I do. What do you do, Mark? And then not understanding. So I'd say, uh, they say, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm an executive coach um, and I coach leaders to achieve success on their own terms. And they'd have this sort of, oh, okay, sure. And then you'd see them uh, kind of look like a a confused puppy dog and then look back at me like, so what do you do? And that wasn't just other people. It was my parents too. (laughs) They're like, I don't understand what you do. Um, So the book came out of trying to really articulate that. And it was also birthed about 20 years of executive coaching formally, seeing how people kept hitting similar roadblocks in different sectors, uh, for-profit governance. And then as I'm most, most of my career has been in the nonprofit sector, but there was human kind of places where people get stuck, not just sector related spaces. So, um, I, I had the privilege of testing this out as a keynote in intensives before the pandemic. And it was one of the most moving, uh, topics I've ever given because I didn't go into it for anything else other than saying you're okay. This is normal. And to have people wait in line for 45 minutes to help unpack stuff that had happened to them back in the 50s, it's been a real privilege to be able to hold that space for people and find out, oh, maybe they're not broken. Yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, I think that that's, you make the point that these are executives, like successful people who have had incredible experiences and careers. And yet we are kind of doubting ourselves, right? We need that affirmation. Like mm. you're okay. You're not broken. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you get to this point and um, I've seen this in a number of spaces where you get to this point in your career where people stop requiring things of you because they know that you can do it. They see your, your proven track record and they just, they have all the confidence in the world for you, but you're the one living inside you. <laughs> you know, all the doubt and all the un- uh, lack of confidence that you personally have, or that you're just making it up as you go. And oh, don't let them see that. And, you know, we don't want to let people know that we're making it up. 
I called yeah. my dad a few years ago and I uh, said, we had gone through another round of just trying to navigate family and, you know, in helping children be well, as well balanced adults as we could. I called him up a few years ago and I said, dad, you were just making this up as you went along, weren't you? <laughs> I really thought he had a plan. I thought he had it figured out. And then I realized, wait, I'm at the age where my dad had all the answers in my mind and I'm not having, I don't feel it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a lot like leadership. We get to, we see people that seem like they know what they're doing. And then we get into that position. We don't know where the guidebook is or where the map is. Yeah. And you know, and you write about that so beautifully and, and I'm going to paraphrase, but you talk about how we emerge through the leadership ranks of our organizations. And most of us are doubting ourselves. We're doubting whether we deserve that promotion or just are qualified for that position we doubt that we know what we're supposed to be doing. We're longing for kind of a paint-by-numbers manual for what we do and how to do it. So self-doubt, typically, though, it's seen as a negative. You know, we hear like, buck up and fake it till you make it, right? Like, mm -hmm. So I love that you see self-doubt as a gift. Talk to us about that. What I have found in coaching leaders is that the question of how broken am I, or I must be really broken because I'm not even getting this, that question, that critical voice could be true. And we live in an amazing time. There's a lot of tools and resources for people, therapy, coaching, classes, degrees to help us overcome those deficiencies. But doubt can also lead us to see the same exact set of principles and look at it and say, what if I'm uniquely gifted for this area? What if my voice is exactly the voice that's needed in this sector? And we can answer it in a whole different way. That's the gift that doubt can bring. It's so exciting to me to watch people start owning their own uniqueness and, yeah. and try, starting to trust what others have already seen in themselves, that they do have a track record and know they don't know the way forward, but they do know how they're going to approach the way forward. And that's enough as they continue putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. How do you keep them in that space? Like maybe I am the one, maybe I do have a unique value proposition. Maybe what I'm bringing to the table is exactly what's needed right now versus having that question, like having that moment, like maybe, like maybe I am I seeing my zone of genius and then saying, no, <laughs> can't be me. How do you keep your coaching clients in that empowered space? I love that you assume that I do and that <laughs> I keep it in myself. <laughs> the whole premise of that question was beautiful, Tammy. Thank you. Um, we don't. I think we, I think we go through having to remind ourselves. And so that's where some of what happens with coaching clients is sometimes it's creating your environment and your space around you, the physical space to reinforce the, the me you want to be. Sometimes for me personally, it's rereading my mission statement. I wrote a mission statement in my twenties. Uh, it's a two page thing, very personal and still very, very timely. And that has been, it's amazing to have that centeredness of, oh yeah, that's right. This is how I operate. There are different props that we can have around. Uh, my wife and I have also learned over the, the time that we've been married, that if we get into the space of feeling like, could it be that fun? Like, could we really do this and enjoy this that much? That that's a tell that we're in our zone of genius again. The hard thing is, for whatever reason, both of our growing up, we learned that we thought we internalized work has to be hard and you don't like it. So when we get to play, it doesn't feel like it could be legitimately something that is legitimate work. That's just 
what we're good at. And so, yeah, fortunately, when you hung out with the same person for 27 years, you get some common vocabulary with each other. And we both are able to call each other out on, hey, and I like zone of genius. I'll start using that too, Tammy. But that, you know, sounds like you're in your zone of genius right there. Yeah, love that. Love that. You know, in the book, you say that leadership is a journey and you distinguish four stages of that leadership development. Walk us through the four stages, if you would. This is, it's amazing to me how um, creating a, a, a model can help people articulate or understand what you do. And it's really cool. You've probably had this experience when your spouse or partner looks at something you created and they say, where did you find this? Because <laughs> it's so good. They know you probably didn't create it. And that was this with my, with my wife. She's like, this fits me in my own journey. How did you do this? So um, the four the four stages I put in quadrants. And if you're, for those of you that are driving, keep your hands on the wheel, please. But um, the, and if you're on the treadmill, just picture in your head, but um, it's a, a, a vertical line of confidence, high confidence at the top and, and an unsure or lack of confidence at the bottom. And then a horizontal line of inputs. Uh, there's external on one side and internal on the other. Most of us don't know that there's a map to leadership at all. We just kind of are given responsibility of tasks and given new, more more things to manage. Uh, so we don't know there's a map. And what we figure out is only half the map. We only figure out the external input half of the map. So the first stage is where you have high confidence and you're looking to externals. I call that the observes quadrant because you're copying what other people have done. Somebody gives you a, a task here, run with this project here, you know, manage this team whatever. And there's two, I've noticed that there are two types of leaders. Typically there's the leaders that are, that are so excited because they knew they had it in them and they're glad somebody finally took, you know, shares that and sees that in them too. And there's the other leaders who don't have the confidence in themselves, but they're willing to trust that the person that's giving them the you know, responsibility has, they're willing to have a confidence in their decision-making. And so they're, they don't necessarily feel confident, but they're at the height of their confidence. So that's why they're still in that quadrant one, um, top of the confidence part of the chart. Um, what happens though, is that as you're in that copying other people's space, you've seen parents lead, you've seen teachers lead, you've seen coaches lead, you've seen bosses and managers, and you try to copy the good parts. Often it, for most of us, it doesn't work. We see somebody say something. So we try saying it ourselves and it, people don't respond the same way. Motivational speakers I used to listen to growing up would say that if you're a leader and you turn around and no one's following you, you're just out for a walk. <laughs> and that. that causes your confidence to go down. So that's where you slide into quadrant two, where you start seeing all that's wrong with you. And that's, I think part of it is how our, our cultures are often, how we grow up human beings in our cultures of, yeah, here's where your deficiencies are. Here's where your weaknesses are. And so we get really good at seeing those as opposed to seeing our strengths. So in quadrant two, the experiment quadrant, you start trying to fix what's wrong with you. Okay, time management's an issue for me. I need to fix that. People skills is, is an issue for me. I need to fix that. Or I need to, you know, what are the podcasts you listen to? Where are the conferences you go to? What are the, the degrees and certifications you get? All good things. But there's out of this deficiency mindset of, I am broken and I need to be fixed. And people lurch from there from, through their life often from that, from, from fix to fix. Um, organizations do too. They just figure out, okay, this is what's wrong. You see this with uh, in nonprofit sector when boards hire executive directors. You have a really good executive director, but they're really good with people. They're not that great with details. 
And so then the board, when that person retires or moves on, the board hires a details person. They don't realize that they're losing all the people relationship skills. So they lurch from those places. And, and many people, that's their their success is, is in that quadrant and looking always to the external inputs. But that's where the doubt helps us go through the into the next half where we can either keep asking, why do we keep missing out? Why do I, everybody else said this strategy really changed our lives. I'm only picking up a few pieces of it. The rest of it just isn't working for me. Going from that to what if that's okay? What if I only need those two pieces for the unique way I approach the world? What if our team only needs to communicate in this other way? What if our, what if our organization, yeah, there's all these other great inputs in the sector and there's all these great studies and we're approaching this differently. Maybe that's because we're adding to the conversation and we're filling a need that doesn't need that nobody saw. That's quadrant three. That's where it's so great, Debbie. That's the, the third stage. Um, and I do think this is linear. So I'm an executive coach. So coaches aren't linear usually, but this, I think this growth pattern is linear. And this is where you start figuring out about yourself. And as you figure out how to communicate about yourself and how to trust yourself and trust your internal inputs, the stuff that we're told not to pay attention to. We're told not to pay attention to your feelings. You know, I was I was raised reading positive motivational literature, and part of it was your mind is the engine of the train, and your emotions are the caboose. Wherever your mind's intention goes, your caboose, your emotions will follow, and that's all right. That gets you to a point, uh, probably. But a lot of the time in our lives, our gut is telling us stuff. Our lived experience is telling us that doesn't quite ring true. And so the quadrant three space is where you start listening, doing the self-reflection and organizational or team reflection to, to figure out why doesn't it ring true. Um, and it's not that you throw out all the externals. Uh, a great example of this in fundraising is fundraising letters. Most of us that write really good fundraising copy, it doesn't ring true to the way we want to communicate. We really want to be professional. We want to show our, our successes, but good fundraising copy is chatty and it's minimalistic. It's reducing the problem to one easy fix with a gift and not, not with lacking integrity. You're doing it with integrity, but there's a difference. Like that's not many people in quadrant three would say, well, I don't want to write that way. That's not how my nonprofit should work. That's where I would help encourage people look at the external input. The data is really clear that donors understand the chatty, simple, simplified version. And then we get a lifetime of trying to grow them into the full story. Um, so don't, so in quadrant three, I'm not saying just throw the baby out with bathwater, but you get to enjoy the, all the inputs and that grows your confidence up to stage four, mm-hmm. where you are in the more, more focused quadrant because you realize you can have a bigger view of the map. What I'm hearing is you really do have to be self-aware and make time for analysis, but also just reflection, like gut checking yourself. Absolutely. Then that feels like cheating for many leaders. Um, so many, so much of our career is problem solving, fixing problems and getting stuff done that when we get into leadership, all of a sudden that becomes micromanaging and being overbearing. And it's really confusing for us because this is what led us to the promotions where we don't really have the shift of, oh, now we have to help other people get stuff done. And take ourselves out. There's a, there's a book that was a Susan Beyer out in Bainbridge referred to where it's we're so used to being on the dance floor. Leaders need to get out into the balcony and see the dance floor. And I'm sorry, I don't know the the author who gave that reference, but it is a beautiful picture uh, because it feels like cheating to most of us that are high achievers, uh, but giving us that space. I don't know what, what your rhythms are, but I know I intentionally every two weeks block an hour and a half 
to just look at the next couple of weeks. It's something a friend of mine, Diane Leonard, taught me Scrum, uh, a management tool. And it's the only part of Scrum that I've been able to, to work on. <laughs> but it's one part I've been able to work on. Yes. And it just, it, that reflective space um, and trying to, I find it very hard with my coaching clients to have them see that as real work. That is the work of leadership as much as making phone calls and, and you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. There's all of it that's part of it. Absolutely. And I think that it it gets neglected because it's important, but not urgent. Oh, that is so true. And that's where, as a Franklin Covey trained coach, I am so excited to hear you say that. Because yeah, the, the important, not urgent, the Eisenhower uh, time management quadrants are so important to that. It's easy to blow off. And, and, and it's also easy to get addicted to our own adrenaline and think that stress is when we're really being productive. Here's something that I've just been thinking about in the last few weeks of I think many of us identify the building a habit as the work. And then when the habits created, we start worrying that we're not actually doing the work anymore because we don't have all the stress of building the habit. So whether it's remembering to pro, you know, do prospecting calls or remembering to write thank you notes or just remembering to go to the gym, it occupies our mind, it occupies our being and in our schedule and it's a big mindset shift. And then all of a sudden we start doing it. And we start worrying that maybe we're slacking because we don't have all that stress of trying to build a habit. And I think it's giving, so giving that pause and allowing that space of, oh my goodness, five years ago, I wasn't doing this. I'm much more disciplined than I was in the past. And that's good. And I can build on those disciplines or make more room for other things in my life. Yeah. You know, what you're describing, Mark, is so powerful is the distinction between, you know, doing the work and, um, leading, managing the strategy piece, the balcony work. And I think that in especially our sector, the nonprofit sector, uh, which is where most of our listeners are coming from, many of our chief development officers are accountable for strategy and leading teams and doing the work, right? They're managing mm -hmm. a portfolio of 100 donors. They are filling, backfilling or filling in for choose your role on their team. You know, they have accountabilities at the C-level table, you know, the executive yeah. leadership of the entire organization. Give us some advice on that. Like how do we, it's not either or, it's and. Well, and that's in, in the nonprofit space. I think in Western organizational structures, my that's the my theory at this point, but nonprofits exemplify this. That isn't, there's not margin for that. Um, the major gift officers probably know this the best. They are most effective when they're outside of a pandemic, when they're not in the office. They're out visiting donors, but CEOs don't know how to manage that because butts and seats are how they kind of see, oh, people are in their place doing their thing. And so major gift officers often have this friction with their managers because they don't see them. So where are you? Why aren't you coming in? Why are you doing these things? What are you, are, you know, there can be a lot of miscommunication. So I, I think part of it is having boards that value this. Some corporations are doing better at creating that strategy place, creating that reflection space. And so allowing our board members to speak up and say, what are you building in for resiliency? How are you building in time for people in their positions to reflect. And honestly, part of it is the CEO. Being a nonprofit CEO is one of the hardest jobs in the world. I've, you're being drawn and quartered every day because the people you serve are not the people that create the revenue. And anyone that says a nonprofit should be more like a business, I would go to the mat and say no. 
because businesses get to be rewarded financially from serving their customers. Nonprofits by design do not get rewarded financially for serving their clients. They have to talk to these other people called donors and they don't get, and the CEO has all the responsibility for making the decisions, but none of the authority because the board often mistakes its governance as being day-to-day operations, which it's not. So I'm not trying to minimize the stress of a CEO, but many people that are in the CEO role in a lot of organizations, including nonprofits are doers. They get stuff done and they're, they're committed to the cause. They're going to take whatever it takes to get their, their stuff done. And then they tell their staff, take your days off, rest, because they've been listening to the right, the right inputs. And so they know the right things to say, but they don't model it. Mm. And I'm seeing an interesting crux now where we have a lot of employees that want their organizations to match the values that they live and that the organization says it lives. And they're finding that a lot of friction with the fact that the CEO hasn't been modeling it, even though they mean it, they're really sincerely mean it, but they're sending that email out at 1130 PM. And so that's signaling to their staff. Well, I probably should be doing that too. I don't know if you did, but I did that. I used to do that at like 1230 in the morning. I would send an email just to show them I'm committed. I'm really in there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's, uh, you know, we have grown up in a culture that where, you know, being overworked, like being a martyr is kind of a badge of honor. And I think that this next generation of workforce is like, "Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So Well, and that's what we're starting to see where there's this thing at the time of this recording, there's a thing called quiet quitting where people are actually just doing their job. And people like I'm at, you know, Xers and boomers are saying, well, that's slackers because they're not really burning themselves out. Well, I don't think it's quitting. I think it's they're doing their job. <laughs> I think it's having yeah. healthy boundaries. There's, hmm, maybe we should try this too. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. Maybe they're the models. We I should think be there's following. some reverse coaching or reverse mentoring that could be happening. I think there, and I think it's a both end. I don't think it's an either or. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's been a lot of toxicity that we've just accepted as normal. Yeah, we can call in the question now, and I think there's a season and openness to do that. Yeah, and I think that's good. And I have always believed, I mean, we know that the average tenure of a fundraising professional, they say, is 16 to 18 months, depending on which study you you read. And I and at the same time, we know that the, you know, average according to the AFP fundraising effectiveness project, the average uh, donor retention is around 46, 45.5. Six percent, something in there, and I do believe there is a direct correlation between staff turnover yes. and donor retention. Yes, and so that's to say that there is, if we apply that belief, there is a measurable ROI on making certain that our staff doesn't burn out. Well, that- here's something really crazy. Back uh, just before the pandemic, we Concord Leadership Group partnered together with uh, Adrian Sargent and a research assistant to do the his uh, leadership study. We looked at four different types of leadership and then looked at their impact, its impact on fundraising. What they discovered in the part, and it was Bloomerang helped with that, Donor Search and uh, Boardable also all partnered together with this. What they found out, which surprised them even as researchers, was they they were going to look at characteristics of, you know, which are the four types of leadership and is it in growing your fundraising. But in the sifting the data, they found out that the organizations that had a clear strategic plan, a well-defined succession plan, and were adequately meeting the, the professional development needs of their team 
were the ones that also had the the strongest correlation with the culture of philanthropy. The hmm. revenue was growing. Uh, the whole team was on board. It wasn't just being sublet to you know subcontracted to a development office, but the board and the staff understood philanthropy is all of our job, not just one person's job or one departments. So you're, it's exactly right. There's a direct ROI with keeping your staff and your attention and having ongoing good fundraising. Um, oh, it Amazing. Gets me fired up. Yeah. So- <laughs> I love it with the, the data correlates too. It's like, oh, I would never, so this is where it's shocking to me. I would never have said to an organization, do you want to have really good fundraising? Let's work on your strategic plan. Let's figure out who, who takes over and what parts keep going if you can't come into work, CEO. And Let's make sure that people are getting coached and trained and going to the conferences and getting the books that they need. I would not have, I would have started with what's your fundraising copy? What are your fundraising goals? Who are your donors? And I still do because that's what most people want when they come for fundraising coaching. But it is fascinating to me that there's such a strong correlation with having a healthy organization, which let's be honest, many nonprofits don't start to be an organization. They start to fix a need. So the CEOs and the founders are really gifted people to see, oh, there's a problem here and I can fix it. And organizations go up around them, but we don't have the the organizational thought process to figure out how do we do this healthily? We're just trying to get stuff done and we can do more if we have more. And I don't understand why everybody's not as committed as I am. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So Mark, I know all of our listeners, I can hear them right now and they're saying, where's that report? Like, is that available online? I would be honored to have your listeners go to concordleadershipgroup.com slash report, Concord with a D, because most of the people that come to me are of two minds, and Concord means bringing two minds into one whole and integrity. So Concord Leadership Group uh, slash report, and they can download it for free, putting in their email. Fantastic. Fantastic. So we'll include a link to that in the show oh, notes. Uh, so you don't even have to worry about spelling it right. Just click it's, on. It's an executive summary and it's pretty. So it's it's good, easy to skim <laughs> and give to your board and others too. <laughs> Love it. Love Feel free it. to make as many copies as you want if you download it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So generous and so valuable. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, as a leadership expert and a coach, what are some of the ways that, you know, that you engage with uh, helping to overcome imposter syndrome. And, you know, you've spoken to it a bit in terms of doubt, but are there any specific nuances? Yeah, that's interesting because I didn't use that term at all in the book, but my publishers pulled it out for the back copy, which I thought was really, really cool. There is, there, so there's a lot of, and I detected a little bit earlier in our conversation, there's a lot of disregard for fake it till you make it. Personally, mm-hmm. I have found that to be very helpful because I tend to, find myself in positions where people are calling me into a space I didn't know I could perform at. And whether it's clients asking me to do services for them that they see I clearly have the skills for, but I don't have the certification or I haven't don't have the track record to do that. So there's there there's that part of the imposter syndrome of, yeah, I don't want to lie to people. I think so I think people with imposter syndrome, first of all, are probably some of the most honest and integ- highest integrity people because they want to be truthful and authentic. But my friend Denise Jacobs said really fabulously that that you have imposter syndrome is an indication that you're the right person for the job. Yeah. Um, and that you the imposters are the people that will never doubt themselves, never question themselves. And those are the people that aren't safe to follow. So part of, some of the things we do is we look at in quadrant three, we start looking at what are the different ways that you're wired? What are the different ways that you're, you're, the stories you're telling yourself, what are the ways you're setting your goals? 
the stories, sometimes we are having stories that have only served us to a point and they don't serve us anymore, but we don't realize that. And they're kind of creating a toxicity within our thought process, or it's like coding a computer or coding a program. They're putting bad code into the program and, and without reflection, we don't rescript ourselves. So some of that can be part where the imposter syndrome is. Some of it's uh, the goal setting. We, we think we're fa failing in other areas of our life because we're just not tracking. I had a, a client that uh, ended up from Atlanta, a leader from Atlanta, had us use a, a tracking tool on an app. And I was living in this place of, I am failing my family. I'm not taking care of them. I'm not spending the time with them that I want to. It was in the ter terms of you know publishing this book and doing the audio book and this coach certification. And I thought I was really, I knew it was a season, but I still felt awful because it wasn't my values. I started doing my the time tracking. I realized I'm totally nailing it. I was giving quality time. I was doing, putting the time that the pie chart was right. It was just out of flux with what it had been before. So part of it is also getting the benchmarks and really figuring out what are we trying to measure and how, because that can also, that clarity can get us out of the fog. And part of the, the third way. So the first way is kind of looking at the quadrant three tools, hardwiring stories, that sort of thing. The second way is tracking um, and, and just taking an intentional season of tracking some stuff to see what's the real data that we're maybe missing out because of our, our own thoughts. Then the, and the third way is to maybe use that as a tell when you feel like you're being an imposter, maybe you're being called into a bigger version of yourself. Mm. And that's where I, it's such a privilege. I know, you know, this as, as a coach being able to help give people permission from the outside. I'm not going to, I can't hire or fire you. It's, it's safe, totally safe to be in this space, to verbally process and to encourage, you know, maybe you seem to have a lot of energy with that. What if you went with that instead of the other thing that you, you say should be done, but you have no enthusiasm for it. And to see yes. people come alive and be able to build up their confidence for during the time of coaching, just to, and, and that's the stuff that stays with them long beyond the coaching relationship. Mm. So important. I mean, when we do those activities or work in the space that is life-giving, it's a big indicator. Like maybe we should be doing more of that. Yes. And, it, and it's, our, can you imagine how wonderful our world would be if people were plugging into, and I'm not just saying it's work is going to have a lot of stuff that we don't like to do. That's fine. Absolutely. I totally get that. And I'm the, so I'm not just saying live your passion, but can you imagine if people were to tap into their passion or give themselves permission maybe to enjoy some things a little bit more? I think we'd have a, the creativity that we'd unleash on the world and the amazing outcomes that we'd have in our organizations would be so I know it'll happen. It's going to be so, so life-changing for everyone in a great way. Yeah. We're back with growth member Jenna Zapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how having 24-7 access to Tammy Zonker's on-demand training library is helping her become a better fundraiser. Since joining the Fundraising Transformers group, I have had the opportunity to go back and re-watch a host of trainings on such a wide variety of topics from how to work with my team members inside my organization to how to get my board excited and passionate about fundraising and topics like how to reach out to a donor and how to get a meeting with a donor. Here's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, sharing that as a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community, you're never alone. How members of the community support one another by sharing resources and lessons learned to help solve tough fundraising problems. 
You oftentimes learn from other people across the entire country, which is really nice because it helps you understand that you're not alone in your uh, fundraising challenges. It, um, I was just sharing with someone the other day that it really helped me feel like I wasn't the only one experiencing these challenges, knowing that someone from New York or New Hampshire or Texas, um, people all over the US with varying communities and different fundraising strategies, we're all in this together. At the end of the show, we'll hear why members enjoy learning from Tammy and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. I mean, Mark, I'm just hearing such complete transformation. You know, as you at the top of our conversation, you talked about uh, you and Emily growing up in an environment where work was hard, right? Work is sacrifice, and it's certainly not fun. And just like seeing you light up now as you talk about your work and equipping and empowering others to really work in, you know, they're calling the things that are life-giving, knowing, to your point, there are work elements, there are pieces to everything that maybe aren't as life-giving but are necessary in the big picture but to work in that space like that's a life well lived and i'm tearing up now because it was in part you that led your reflection of that is something that it was something you taught years ago that helped me encode it into my manifesto for conquered leadership group uh you and peter drury at the nonprofit storytelling conference did a, a manifesto session and you started with what you were against yeah. I don't normally cry on podcasts, but I see things so positively and I love transforming things into a positive way. There's always a silver lining. And if not, I'll just put some duct tape around because there's <laughs> going to be silver in there somewhere. You know, there, so when I started about what I stand against as my company, because I was thinking in 2019, I need to start, or 2018, I need to start allowing people to know what, what they're joining when they join Concord Leadership Group as I start hiring people. And so what I stand against, but then at the bottom, it said, and if people want to see this, I think it's ConcordLeadershipGroup.com slash manifesto, something like that. But at the bottom, it says, I, I love being the midwife that helps birth the transformation in leaders so that their before self and their after self is so much like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Mm -hmm. That they're so just enjoying that new stuff. And it's not different than what they were before. It's just, it's the same entity, same being, but it's transformed in a way that they don't want to go back. Yeah. So thank you. Cause wow. Yeah. Well, I'm inspired that you were touched by that. And, uh, and I love that you again, put it into action to continue empowering your amazing work. Oh, so. it's, it's, it, and so anybody that's do, listening to this, um, kind of writing a manifesto, writing a what you stand for, why you do what you do, getting clear on your values. Um, I have found that to be incredibly motivational to the point where I have now, my manifesto gets emailed to me every Tuesday morning. Mm. I use a tool called followupthen.com. So I put Tuesdays at followupthen.com. And I have the cut and paste the entire image page in there. So that I can remember my remind myself on Tuesdays because Mondays are usually really full. So Tuesdays they're full, but at least I have space to remind myself. Oh yeah, this is why I'm in this fight. This is why I'm doing this work. So powerful. Yeah, I mean it becomes the North Star, right? And so on those days when it's really challenging, or maybe you're embarking on something new and you just want to go back and touch 
Rosetta Stone yes. that helps provide the context and make sense for your life. That's that's what it's all about. And it's it's inspiring to me to start. My wife was surprised when I said uh, what I fought against because she said, you're so positive. This is starting with negative. But I stand against systems that grind leaders to a pulp. Oh. And spit them out and wait for the new the new person to come in to be ground to a pulp. I mean that's that's one of the things. That's why I do what I do. And so thank you for sharing us a formula that could be done that way. So yeah, ah. thank you. And I know Peter would be um, equally touched that it made a difference for you. Ah, oh, so good, so good. <laughs> Mark, I wanna I wanna kind of. Um, ask you to talk. You touched on it just a little bit, but you, one of the many distinctions that I love in the surprising gift of doubt is what you call stock stories. You mm. know, the stories we consistently tell ourselves or others that can either feed doubt or can empower us. And because we're hardwired for a negative bias without a lot mm -hmm. of professional development and intention, you know, that, that a lot of them can be disempowering. So tell our listeners about that distinction and and how you distinguished more than 600 stock <laughs> stories in your life. <laughs> so that story is fun. Um, we were going to the first, Chris Davenport and I were doing, uh, Shannon Doolittle was doing the, the first nonprofit storytelling conference. And I thought, oh no, I'm going to a nonprofit storytelling conference. I'm going to emcee this event. I should probably know what my stories are too. And so I just started just on a moleskin, just writing down what are the and phrases and things about what are the stories about myself that I tell people. And I thought through things like when I'm at a conference, how do, what are the, the laugh lines I give that will indicate, okay, you know, help them laugh, feel good about themselves, but also help them place me in the way that I want them to place me as opposed to however they might place me. And over the course, it was amazing to me how that just kind of snowballed into over 600 different things everywhere from me breaking my sister's drum kit at Christmas back probably in 75 when I was three before she had a chance to even use it. You know, and that, that became a real restraining bolt on me of, I break other people's things. I overtake their stuff and I break it before they even have a chance to play with it. So it was many decades later, I started realizing that doesn't serve me anymore. My enthusiasm for other people's things, what it helps me to do is to not overwhelm because my thing is to let's study broadly. When we moved to the South of the United States, I started and wanted to get to know my community. So I started studying 181600, you know, the 1860s uh, history, reconstruction, civil war. <laughs> Most people look at Yelp reviews for the restaurants <laughs> when they want to know their community. <laughs> I go like 150 years back, 200 years back. So I, I have learned to tame that, but the, for, the understanding of stock stories came from an experience I had when I was dating the woman who's now my wife. And I told a, lot, a story that I knew was going to get her, like make her see me in a good light and laugh. And I did not know that I told that story a lot until my roommate rolled his eyes, looked over at her and said, oh, if you hang out with him much longer, you're going to hear that a lot. That's one of his stock stories. Yeah. Oh my! I was totally called out or called in, depending on how you have it. Dan, to this day, he was the best man at my wedding. He still does not ever remember saying that, but it stuck with me of like, oh, am I that predictable? Oh no. And then if I am that predictable, how am I telling stories? One of the things people can do is, is pay my friend, Jessica Sharp has people just kind of pay attention to non-judgmentally as much as possible to the stuff that's going through people's head and have a, uh, a legal pad of paper at your desk or your workspace and just write down the thoughts and, you know, 
whatever the thoughts are. And again, not judgmentally, but just, oh, I just thought about that, or that was my thought, or I just said that to myself. Sometimes it's in the voice of a former teacher or a parent. There's different, there's different things that log in there. And then after the course of a day or a week, looking at that and reading all those messages and then asking yourself, it's so powerful what she says, she invites her clients to do. She said, she holds it out to them, holds out the pad and said, would you talk to your friend this way? Mm. And if not, why not make an intention to be a better friend to yourself? So good. Because I think most of the times, um, I, for those of you who are listening, who have a boss, um, most of you don't realize that your boss really doesn't wake up in the morning and want to be a really bad person. You know, no boss really wakes up in the morning and wants to be a jerk. Just like someone used to say, no board member wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a crappy board member. How do I do that? Um, so most bosses are trying to do the best that they have, but they have this as critical as you are of their decisions. They're already racked. Most of them, despite how they show present uh, with a lot of criticism of themselves, because they already know how they're falling short also. So I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of people that need changing and growth, but it's interesting to be aware of your own stories, you know, even if you don't have any positional authority, as you start doing some of these leadership things and creating that own, your own space, you start positioning yourself for the type of healthier environment, even if you're in a toxic environment. Um, and I'm not saying stay in a toxic environment. I would never <laughs> encourage that. But there's stuff that you, even if you don't feel like you have any agency, there's stuff that you can do to start building some resiliency and some strengthening some muscles as you go wherever you are. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mark, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful questions to provide, you know, just a little bit extra value for our listeners. Uh -oh. So are you ready? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> I'll try. All right. So first question, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever been given? I don't know if I've been given this, but I think ask on the first date. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a, I had some clients and I had my own feeling of, I can't ask until I've met somebody a certain number of times. I can't ask them to give. And it's come around to me through my, you know, 25 years of doing fundraising that the, that is incredibly narcissistic because it's not putting the donor or the organization forward. It's putting me as the fundraiser forward. I haven't met this person. So they clearly don't have a relationship with the organization. It makes no sense. So being willing to ask on the first, my first meeting of them honors the fact that they may have a history with the organization or the cause or the sector um, and that their time is valuable. They may not want to have multiple meetings with me, but they may want to make an impact in the world. So asking on the first date is something that I think is, I love. I think that's some of the best advice I've been given. Wow. That's interesting. I'm going to have to process that. That's well, good. So part of, part of the problem is we've been taught and rightly so that it's all about relationships, but it's not. Fundraising isn't all about relationships. Fundraising is about raising funds. The best one, most fulfilling and wonderful way to do that is building relationships, but those relationships are always centered around an ask because a donor doesn't become a donor without a donation. So this is true. That's true. So it's and not, and we have, and being honest about that is awesome. Like this, that is, there is, you know, you're not tricking anybody by thinking nobody thinks you're trying to be just their best friend. They know. <laughs> and that's actually a disservice because you're a, a conduit. Disservice. You're a conduit between the donor and the, and the organization, the cause that they care about. It's it really, you're right. It's not about becoming besties. Although you do want to be that engaging, uh, you know, to be that pleasant, to provide a pleasant experience for the donor to do what they already want to do, which is to support this cause. 
So, so and I know we'll be faster on the other ones. I promise I will be. <laughs> Just in the interest of equity, it's also a disservice to your staff that needs to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think one of the things that we sometimes miss out, and we're being personal to donors, not because donors are higher power or that we our mission is warped around them. No, it's because they're part of the community that's helping the community of health that we're facilitating. But our staff needs to get paid, and they deserve to get paid at at reasonable rates. Um, and so, our getting over the uh, the this artificial thing of, well, we can't ask on the first date is your staff deserves to do that. And you deserve to not have sleepless nights because of payroll. Yeah, this is true. Very true. I'll be faster on the next. (laughs) You're fine. I like this. I mean, I think this is what our listeners want. They want, like, they want to unpack some things. They want to peel that onion and have some juicy conversations, not just like, you know, initial short responses. So we're fine. We're fine. Good, good, good. (laughs) Mark, what book do you recommend to our audience and why? And this could be your, two of your books, or it could be in <laughs> books in addition to yours. Oh, phew, because you always, those of us that write, write the books that we wish had been written. Yes. <laughs> so Ask Without Fear has helped so many people since 2008. It sold over 25,000, maybe now it's close to 30,000 copies. And people continue to get a lot out of it. I love that. Surprising gifted out, I love. What's coming to mind, which is intriguing, because I should say Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a really, it's a classic. And I keep going back to that as a touch point. But the one that's coming to mind is um, a book called How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling by Frank Betger. I just reacquainted myself with it. And it's a 1950s insurance salesman sort of thing. But in a fundraising, being so relational, it's sometimes hard to quantify. And I love the systems that he has. Like sometimes it feels like the money's not coming in or donors aren't giving, but he gives you these things to measure that you can control. You can control how many calls you're having going out and you can control how many times you're making an ask. There are certain things that you can control that give you that sense of, I'm not at the whim of everybody else necessarily. If I don't have the results I want, maybe there's some more input that I can do. Uh, And it also helps you train your board and your boss, if you're a fundraiser, to show it's not just about the dollars coming in, board or boss. It's about all the, it's about planting the seed, tilling the soil, tending the soil, and then reaping a harvest in a way that we can still do that again next year. So um, it helps you train them as well. Love it. What are the top three traits? of the most successful fundraising professionals? Oh, man. I think, well, honesty and integrity, I'm going to lump those together as one. I think our best fundraising tools are always honesty and integrity. The One of the most compelling fundraising asks I've been able to use over the years is, you know what, Tammy, I don't even know if this is in your, your ballpark, but would a gift of a million dollars be something you'd consider to this cause? It allows me to ask high And it allows me to honor the fact that I don't know. So honesty and integrity, I think, are really important. And I think they're meshed together. Uh, The uh, second one, uh, because I'm going to count this as a a unit. uh, The second one is curiosity. I think Mm -hmm. one of the best things I have, I I couldn't believe it when I first fell into fundraising. I got paid to listen to people's stories. And nobody was asking these people their fascinating stories. They have incredible experiences, incredible perspectives on the world. And I get to hear them and I get to do that. Yeah, that was my job. And that, so I love the insatiable curiosity of tell me more. Oh, what do you mean by that? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I just find people incredibly fascinating. And mm, I think I that love that leads with a third to a willingness to track results or strategy. I would say strategy maybe. So 
it's not just the conversations and the curiousness isn't just to connect with people as great as that is. Our organization is paying us to connect with people for a purpose. And so going in and trying, as you're listening, being fully present and engage an active listener so that you're not worried about what the next spiel you're going to say is, but really hearing what the person in front of you is saying and knowing your organization well enough to know where those may line up. Hey, you know what, because you said this, I wonder if we could, would helping us with this area of the program, would that be something that you'd want to invest in and being able to match it that way? So honesty, integrity, curiosity, and a, a strategic focus or an openness to being strategic. Mm-hmm. Very good. I mean, who wouldn't want to be fundraising after that, after hearing that? I mean, I my makeup anyway, I'm so excited. It's like, that, that's the best job ever. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. You're so good at it too. I know you agree. That's awesome. Oh, thanks, Mark. <laughs> What's your favorite fundraising tool or application? I love the gift chart, a gift range calculator. I love the, uh, every time I share it with people that are new to fundraising or have, or have been in fundraising a while and forget the basics, um, looking at what's our goal and what, you know, what are the levels of gifts that will help us get to that goal? It provides a map. It takes the guesswork out of things and it allows you to ask donors maybe at a higher level than you may feel comfortable doing, but it's not because of the donor. It's not because you've read something about the donor. It's not because you're being manipulative or anything. It's just because this is the roadmap to get us there. And it serves the donors because it shows the donors. I'm not expecting you to be on the hook for the whole thing. This is our plan to get to this place. So, um, because you had said this about my books in the beginning, uh, giftrangecalculator.com is a free a site where you can go. I've got, I host a gift range calculator that is the more conservative end. So when you have a board member that says, we need to raise a million bucks, you can say, great, go to giftrangecalculator.com, type in 1 million, and you could start asking, who are the five people we know that could give $250,000? Let's start building that list now while they're excited. It will chasten them to realize, oh, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just, you know, we can't just crowdfund this, but it will also have an opportunity to get them while they're, while they're excited. And then there are other gift range calculators on the market that allow you to be more internal because it's, we know the top gift is usually 10 to 25%. So my gift, my calculator always does a 25% because you can always ask a donor, hi, they'll negotiate down. They tend to not negotiate up from what you ask them to do. So. Yeah, this is true. Love that. I'm not doing well at being concise, but I'm hopefully being complete. <laughs> yes. And I think it's so helpful. And and I completely agree. The gift range calculator to me even helps fundraising professionals move from overwhelm, like what's my number? Oh my gosh, into action. All right. I can see yeah. how we're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. No offense to our animal welfare no, organizations no, listening. The, yeah, no. It's a vegan yeah. elephant. It, it, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> uh, your favorite. Now, this could get you in a lot of trouble. A lot of because trouble. Because you keynote a lot of conferences. So dare I ask, what's your favorite fundraising conference and why? Full disclosure, I help run this conference, but I, the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference is consistently my favorite. Tammy, you know, you've been there. It's the first one where I've seen people bring people to the conference, uh, go to the conference blind, not understanding why they're doing it, uh, but just thinking this is the right people and then bringing their boss the second year and then bringing their board the third year or bringing their entire staff from Norway, like one group did um, and others from the United States, bring 20 or 30 people to a conference. Usually it's the specialist goes to the conference, but they're bringing people. So I think it's the attendees and the speakers. And I credit you with that too. The, as a speaker and as an attendant, the speakers jumped right in from day one. We're, we're in our ninth year now. 
there were no egos in the room. It was all, let's all get together. Let's be the most effective at communicating with the people that are funding our organizations in a way that's equitable and helpful so that we can do more good in the world. And there's the energy of people with that like-minded purpose and learning the strategies and learning the tools and learning the formula, but also learning the heart. I think the conference, Chris Davenport, who, who founded the conference, does a really good job of making sure that the top research is being showcased in a story format, as well as the personal professional. How do you as a person in this space excel yourself? What motivates you? How do you find your right place in this space? So I think it's a both and, and it honors volunteers, nonprofits, uh, nonprofit staff and leaders. So you see everybody in the mix in these conferences and they all feel like they've been heard and seen and, and, and growing. I love that conference as well. And it's coming up. It'll be hosted this year in San Antonio. Uh, I believe it's October 27th through the 29th. Mark and Very I will good. both be there speaking. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. It's a fantastic conference. And I don't just say that. I mean, this is this is because other people have said that to me, um, that the investment is something that has transformed them. You've heard this too. People go to the conference and then rewrite their entire fundraising appeal on the way home on the airplane and double and triple their revenue. Um, yeah. you know, your mileage may vary. Results may be, you know, may not be typical, but we do hear this regularly from people of, oh, I just didn't know. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so much good that happens there. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mark, last rapid fire question. <laughs> I love how you reminded me that it's rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what you do now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self who's just getting started in the profession? Oh, wow. I think permission, I'd give my younger self permission to not have all the answers. Uh, my very first book in fundraising was uh, Deborah Ashton's Blue Bible on uh, planned giving. Um, and it was learning about Kretz and Kratz and all the different tax things that was way too nerdy. Um, that going out there, meeting people and trying to find the connect where their passion and the impact of the organization connect is is enough. You don't have to, you know, yes, there'll be questions you can't answer, but they're not expecting you to have to. It's not like you're getting interrogated. Um, and yes, there are objections that they may come up with, but there are ways to go around that. And it's not, I guess it's the other thing would be in the same vein. It's not a one shot. It's not like you're going to, you don't only have one time to talk to a person. You get space. There's, there's many iterations that you can try to have this conversation. And so it, it, the encouragement to do it, to get out there more rather than stay at my desk and and try to study and consume all the knowledge so that I'll be really prepared and, and make my organization look good. Um, being out there and listening to people makes your organization look good all on its own. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us. You've been so generous. You are a blast. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I, I get the better end and my tissues are out. I didn't realize. <laughs> thank you for, for moving me deeply. <laughs> and oh. I hope this has been inv invigorating for people just recommitting to who they are and what change that they can see in the world. Yeah, undoubtedly it has been. So if you want to learn more about Mark and his incredible work, check out his website, concordleadership.com. We'll include that link in the show notes, as well as links to his books and some of the free resources that he offered up. And the whole, I mean, there was a robust list of links that we promised to. So, so clear your calendar and check out those links. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. 
We're back for a final word about Tammy Zonker's training style and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her fundraising Transformers community. Here's growth member Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee. Tammy is so encouraging. She's very empowering. She really wants you to succeed in your role. And that really comes through with everything that she does from the monthly coaching calls to the monthly webinars. The guidance I've received from Tammy and other members of the Fundraising Transformers group has always been so constructive, so beneficial. And you can tell everyone in the group wants everybody else to succeed because we all know what a challenging job it can be to fundraise for our our wonderful causes and our organizations. You may be asking yourself, can a growth membership really help me improve my fundraising results? Is it worth my time? Laurel Grow from Phoenix Family in Kansas City shared that her organization increased charitable dollars raised by 132% since joining as a growth member. Becky Shambliss from Awake in Anchorage, Alaska shared that her organization increased donor retention from 13% to 69% in about a year using what they learned from Tammy's training. And growth member Amanda Johnson from Multiplying Good in Indianapolis shared that her organization exceeded their annual fundraising goal by 104% and grew overall giving by 13% in one year by applying lessons learned from Tammy as a member of her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's member Stevie Shumate again sharing how she and you can grow your fundraising skills as a growth member of Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community. This is the first fundraising role that I have ever been in before. Um, so at 30 years old, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, well, how do I rocket launch my fundraising expertise? You learn from Tammy Zonker. That's what you do. Become a member of the Fundraising Transformers community. To join our live monthly training and Ask Me Anything sessions and get access to our growing library of on-demand training videos and tools and share lessons learned with other fundraising pros like you in our private and safe online community, visit fundraisingtransform.com growth, click join, and get started today. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.